Grammar Girl here. I'm Mignon Fogarty, and you can think of me as your friendly guide to the English language. We talk about writing, history, rules, and cool stuff. Today, we'll talk about the two spellings of the word stationary. I love the history of one of them. And we'll talk about whether you should correct people's pronunciation. But first, stay with me because I'm giving away money. Seriously, we're celebrating the 15th anniversary of the Grammar Girl podcast next week. And my partners at Macmillan kept pushing me to make a big deal out of it. But I didn't want to just talk about me or even the show. So I started thinking about what really matters to me. And it's helping people and especially helping people learn. And because of you, the people who listen to this show, which makes everything else I do possible, the books, the courses, going on Oprah and the Today Show, I'm able to do more to help people. So I'm matching donations up to $7,500 at Donors Choose for one week from now until July 29th, 2021. Together, you and I can raise $15,000 for teachers for the 15th anniversary of the show. Here's how it works. Teachers make projects showing what they need for their classroom on Donors Choose, a top-rated charity. And then you back their project and use the code GRAMMARGIRL, and I'll match whatever you give until we hit that $7,500 goal. There's also a $1,000 per donation limit. I doubt that's going to be a problem, but I have to say it. So you can give $5 or you can back a whole project. It's up to you. And the thing I really like about Donors Choose is that it's easy to find a teacher in your area. So no matter where you live in the United States, you can almost always find a teacher near you. And you can also filter by things that matter to you, like giving to a teacher at a school where more than half the students come from low-income households, or a teacher at a rural school, or a teacher who specifically wants to buy books. And I know I have a bunch of international listeners, and I'm sorry this doesn't include you. I absolutely encourage you to give to teachers in your own community because teachers are important everywhere. And if you want to tell me about it on social media, I'll add it to our running total. So if you're in the U.S., go to donorschoose.org slash grammar. And when you make a donation, remember to use the code GRAMMARGIRL so I can match it. Let's raise $15,000 for teachers. Now that would be something to celebrate. That's donorschoose.org slash grammar and the code grammar girl. And now on to the show. One difficult set of words is the two spellings of stationary. One word is spelled with an A and the other one is spelled with an E. They're pronounced the same but mean different things and that means they're homophones. You can trace both words back to the Latin word stationarius, which meant without motion. And in Latin, it seems to have been used to describe a military station. It's easy to see how a Latin word that meant motionless gives us the English word stationary spelled with an A, which essentially means the same thing, not moving, fixed in one place, still, and so on. For example, almost every big gym has a row of stationary bikes. You can remember the spelling of this word by thinking that when you're stationary, you're often standing. Since standing is also spelled with an A, the association can remind you to put the second A in stationary. The story of how we got stationary with an E is a little more interesting. In the Middle Ages, a lot of villages and towns got goods from traveling peddlers. But as anyone who's packed too many books on vacation knows, books and other paper products are heavy. 
So booksellers and people who sold other paper products usually sold them from a storefront, a stationary location, as in a location that didn't move, a station. And then these sellers became known as stationers. Then, by association, the products they sold, the stationers' wares, became known as stationery with an E, after the name of the people who ran the shops, the stationers. And as a delightful aside, the Oxford English Dictionary describes a livery company of the City of London formed in the 1400s called the Worshipful Company of Stationers, which was essentially a guild of stationers, and it still exists today, but it's now called the Stationers Company. The Oxford English Dictionary also says that Stationer was a surname in the late 1200s. So if your last name is Stationer, it probably means one of your ancestors was a bookseller, printer, or bookbinder. So stationery with an E is paper, usually paper that you use for writing letters or notes. And stationery is spelled with an E because it goes back to the stationers, the people who ran the shops. But if that doesn't help you remember the proper spelling, here's a simple trick. You can remember that it's spelled with an E by thinking that the E stands for envelope. Use the nice stationery to write your grandmother. And if you never write letters, you can think of the E as standing for email, which is still something you send, kind of like stationery. So to sum up, think of the stationery that describes standing still as being spelled with an A for standing, and the stationery that describes paper products as being spelled with an E for envelope or email. This next segment is by Jane Setter, a professor of phonetics at the University of Reading. A recent survey of 2,000 adults in the UK identified the top 10 mispronunciations people find annoying. Thankfully, the majority, 65%, of annoyed people don't feel comfortable correcting a speaker in public. But leaving aside the fact that 2,000 is hardly a representative sample of the UK with its population of over 66 million, this survey raises long-standing linguistic questions. Why do people pronounce words differently? Why does pronunciation change? And why does so-called mispronunciation upset some people to the point of making it possible and interesting to compile a top 10 list? I'm a phonetician, an expert in the way people make speech sounds and pronounce language. I've also written about what we can learn about a person from the way they speak. A universal truth about language is that it is subject to constant change, and pronunciation is just as likely to change over time as aspects like grammar or vocabulary. One criticism of speakers who pronounce nuclear as nuclear is that it doesn't match the spelling. In fact, English is known for having some very irregular spelling-to-sound correspondences, so that argument doesn't always hold up. The most extreme cases are probably family and place names. The surname that looks like Featherstone Haw can be pronounced to sound like Fanshawe, for example, while the place that looks like Torpenhow in Cumbria is pronounced Trepana. How did we get those pronunciations? Well, through a process of gradual historical language change. These changes could be the result of social interaction. Other people say it like this. Mishearings, spelling pronunciations, phonetic processes, or the influence of other languages, among other things. Certainly, language change is inevitable, which is handy because it keeps us linguists in business and generates a lot of copy for newspapers and the like. Let's have a look at some of the pronunciations people objected to in the survey. 
Espresso is pronounced espresso by many people, even though there's no X in the spelling. This pronunciation probably arose by analogy with the word express. The two are actually cognate words with similar origins, both meaning press out or obtain by squeezing. If you hear someone ask for an espresso, it's easy to see how you might mishear this to be nearer to a word you already know and therefore adopt that pronunciation. Importantly, you're unlikely to misunderstand what the speaker has asked for. We don't have a similar issue with the pronunciations of cappuccino or mochiato because we simply don't have anything similar to those words in English. And incidentally, I'm reliably informed that the French word for espresso is expresso. Viva la différence! The pronunciation of probably as probably likely arrives from a process called weak syllable elision or deletion. The weak second syllable in probably is often deleted in speech. A similar phenomenon happens in especially, pronounced specially. The first syllable is weak and is deleted. In English, the most important syllables for listener comprehension are stressed. That's why young children acquiring language say tatoes for potatoes and jamas for pajamas. In rapid adult speech, it's very likely that these weaker syllables will be deleted. As George Bailey, a sociolinguist at the University of York, notes, it's interesting that probably and especially are singled out when we do this with many words. He gives the example of memory, pronounced memory, and library, pronounced library, which didn't make the list. I have, however, noticed a recent change in the way some words which have historically had weak syllable elision are pronounced. For example, irreparable seems to be changing from four syllables with a main stress on the second, irreparable, to five syllables with the main stress on the third, irreparable. I'm not entirely sure what's going on here, but it could be by analogy with the word repair or with comparable, which seems to be shifting from comparable to comparable. The last word I'll draw out for examination is arctic, pronounced arctic. It's possible that the first C might not be heard in rapid speech, even if a speaker's articulating it. That's because it's produced farther back in the oral cavity than the following T, and so its release can be masked. Historically, as Graham Poynton, formerly the BBC's pronunciation advisor, has noted, the Chambers Etymological Dictionary lists the earliest English version as Arctic. The C could have been reinserted during the Renaissance period when scholars sought to reform English spelling to reflect classical languages such as Latin and Greek. Unfortunately, they had also reformed the spelling of words that had entered the language through other routes. This gave us such fun spellings as debt, D-E-B-T, for what had been written as D-E-T-T-E in Middle English and came from Old French. And of course, we don't pronounce the B in debt. Another route for language change is the influence of other speakers. I'm half expecting people to start pronouncing microwave quite differently following the viral clip of Nigella Lawson in which she pronounces it microwave, microwave. I've already had discussions with people who say they've adopted it just for fun. So how long before it goes mainstream? So what does this say about the 35% of people who feel compelled to correct so-called mispronunciations in public? Nothing good, in my opinion. It seems to be a pedantic display of perceived superiority, which can only result in the person with the unacceptable pronunciation looking stupid. 
The way people speak and pronounce words is very much dependent on their language background and experience. By correcting a pronunciation that you've actually understood but somehow object to, you could be inadvertently or even purposefully pointing out perceived deficiencies arriving from differences in social class, culture, race, gender, and so on. Correcting pronunciation can actually be an act of linguistic prejudice. This is different from correcting a language learner in a pronunciation classroom or asking someone to repeat something you haven't understood, for example. Taking someone politely aside is less threatening, but you should still consider your motivations for doing so. It might not always be the case that the corrector's motivations are self-centered. My father always corrected me in private because he believed that having a non-standard accent, particularly one which is perceived as ugly by some, would negatively affect my career prospects. Sadly, at that time, this was in the 1980s, I think my father was right. Issues of linguistic prejudice linked to race and class are still alive and well, as was recently brought into sharp focus in an article on the American television news journalist Dion Broxton, in which he describes being unable to get a job on camera until he hired an accent coach to help him learn to speak without his Baltimore accent. The good news is that linguists in the UK are actively working on research and resources to help combat accent prejudice. That segment was written by Jane Setter, a professor of phonetics at the University of Reading. It originally appeared in The Conversation and appears here through a Creative Commons license. Finally, I have a word story from Sharon. Hi, Minion. My name is Sharon, and I'm from Cape Cod, Massachusetts, and I have a family story. I have a sister who has cerebral palsy, and when she was very young, she would call out in desperation with this word, linga, linga. And it took a while before we discovered that she was asking for something to drink. She wanted her thirst quenched. And it made it very interesting to me as I put lingual together, tongue, linga. I just thought it was a very interesting word. She can talk much better now. And I hope that I hear this on your podcast. Thank you so much. Bye. Thanks, Sharon. That's not exactly a familect because it doesn't sound like your family adopted the word, but you're right that it's fascinating that she used the word linga for something to drink. And I do wonder if it's somehow related to lingual too, although that doesn't seem to be like a word a child would know, but still really interesting. Thanks. If you want to call with your family word story, you can leave a voicemail at 833214GIRL, and I might play it on the show. I'm Mignon Fogarty, better known as Grammar Girl. You can find articles that go with each podcast segment at my website, quickanddirtytips.com. Thanks to my producer, Nathan Sims. And that's all. Thanks for listening. Thanks.